Welcome to this BMJ Roundtable on patient-centred care, sponsored by DNVGL. Delighted to have you all here. I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and look forward very much to the discussion we're going to have. And I'd like to in invite everyone sitting around the table to introduce themselves briefly and to highlight one key topic that they think we should address during this roundtable. My name is Paul Wicks, I'm Vice President of Innovation at Patients Like Me uh, and the burning issue for me is how we're going to harness all of the energy that's uh, nascent in the e-patient movement and bring it into the mainstream of uh, medical healthcare. My name's Dave DeBroncard, I'm known on the internet as ePatient Dave. The E stands for Empowered, Engaged, Equipped, Enabled. I'm a disciple of Tom Ferguson, who first appeared in the pages of BMJ in the 1990s. And the question that we pursue in the Society for Participatory Medicine is how can we shift the culture of medicine such that physicians don't see it as an insult uh, if patients have opinions and can bring contributions to the table. Hello, I'm Angela Coulter. I um, work for the Informed Medical Decisions Foundation and the University of Oxford. Um, I'm keen to see how we can, we've been talking about um, some of these issues around patient-centered care for a long time. I'm really keen to uh, hear ideas about how we can speed up the momentum to implement some of the ideas. Hello, I'm Jeremy Taylor from National Voices, which is a national coalition of charities, and our purpose is to promote person-centred care, which is also my burning issue. How can we turn it from policy rhetoric uh, and good intentions into practice? I'm Ben Mearns, I'm a doctor, and I lead on acute and elderly care at uh, East Surrey Hospital in Redhill. And we work very closely with patient opinion and have been using it to gather patient feedback for some time. Um, what I'd like to know is how we make the whole NHS embrace a culture of openness and transparency so that we can truly provide patient-centred care. I'm Paul Hodgkin. I uh, was founder of Patient Opinion. Uh, I was also a GP till five years ago. Uh, my burning issue is that across society we're moving from hierarchies and uh, big up-down organisations to webs and medicine is being reshaped by patients empowered by digital and what sort of medicine is going to emerge from that is absolutely crucial. Um, my name is Alex Silverstein. I'm the past president of the International Diabetes Federation's Young Leaders in Diabetes um, project. And I, uh, like Dave, believe in four E's, equipment, education, empathy, and engagement opportunities. And for me, as a person with diabetes, I believe not all of those E's can come solely from in, an in-clinic perspective. Um, and I think that really needs to be appreciated in future culture. I'm Rupert Whittaker uh, from the Chuk Institute and uh, also work as an expert witness in psychiatry. Um, and I think my, uh, the, the thing that I really want to have addressed is how uh, patient-centeredness gets um, subverted by the current physician-centered model and uh, how it's prevented from being implemented because I think the uh, identifying those obstacles will then give us an idea of how to um, uh, create some leverage to prevent them from having their effect. 
Uh, my name's Navjot Lada. I'm a clinical editor here at the BMJ and I'm a part-time GP as well. Um, from a very practical point of view, I'd like to know how we get this you know, movement with lots of momentum, how we bring doctors up to speed with that movement as well so that everyone's on the, the same page. My name is Sarah Rigger. I'm an engineer, a PhD student and a person living with Parkinson's disease. I spend one hour per year with my neurologist and 8,765 hours in self-care. So I believe very much in the patient's ability to self-care, but to be able to do that, we need access to our data. And also, we can also contribute a lot to, to, to knowledge that healthcare needs to manage other patients like us better. I'm Rosamond Snow, I'm the BMJ's patient editor, uh, and I have had type 1 diabetes since I was a teenager. And um, interestingly, I find myself most in agreement with the other person with type 1 diabetes. Um, where uh, I, I, my main thing is trying to widen the definition or, or focus on the uh, idea of patient-centred <coughs> care in terms of organisation of care, which is a really wicked, tricky problem, because that includes uh, implications for education and for infrastructure as well as just an interaction in the clinic or access to data. Hi, my name is Michael Sears. Um, I'm a long-term patient uh, with bowel, had bowel transplant and, and now cancer. Um, I'm particularly interested though in how patients can become innovators within the healthcare. I'm found uh, of a health technology company known as Eleven Health. I'm particularly interested in how digital technology can empower patients to, to shape healthcare. Hello, my name's Alf Collins. I'm clinical associate and person-centred care at the Health Foundation. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm particularly interested in how can systems or individuals working in systems know whether they're doing person-centred care or not. So measurement is something that I think is, is key to this. I'm Dr. Amr Hanan. I'm a GP at Horn Thornley Medical Centres in Hyde and Thameside, and I'm also um, a CCG board member for Thameside and Glossop CCG, leading on long-term conditions, information management technology, and patient engagement and patient empowerment. Um, we've enabled 31% of our patients as our practice, that's over 3,700 patients, to have access to their records. Um, but most importantly, get a better understanding to currently, I'm just looking at my figures, 48% um, of our type 1 diabetics and 38% of our overall diabetic population have got access to their records. Um, I'm working with the CCG and others to look at how we can start to use that and support the understanding to help us move forwards, um, supporting practices, clinicians and patients um, through a partnership of trust. I'm Tessa Richards, BMJ's um, patient partnership editor, and unsurprisingly, uh, you will know that my passion is to uh, broke conversations just such as this between um, patients and um, health professionals, but I'm also passionate about changing the culture of the paternalistic health systems that we all um, use, go to, and I'm equally passionate as a carer as well as a patient to see the role of carers and the support infrastructure around individual patients and people, how that really matters and how they can contribute in a way that they are seldom allowed to contribute at the moment, they're often excluded. Thank you very much, everyone. What an amazing um, group we've got and a lot of very burning issues to 
consider. <coughs> Can we start, though, um, with the perhaps quite broad question on exactly what we mean by patient or person-centred care? So I think we'll all agree there is a consensus um, that health systems need to become less disease and doctor-centric and more patient-centred, um, and there's a lot of policy about that, but as expressed already, an impatience amongst us to try to move forward on this. But what do we actually mean by patient or person-centred care? And I wonder if I could ask Alf Collins of the Health Foundation, you've recently set out core principles of person-centred care. What, in your view, are they and who defined them or who should define them? And then perhaps we could discuss that in more depth with others. So, Alf. Um, so, in the Foundation, over the last few years, we've been looking at various papers that have uh, defined what person-centred care is. And what we felt as a foundation that there are a number of principles underpinning these ideas of what person-centredness actually is. Um, and the first principle is affording people dignity, compassion and respect. Um, the second principle is personalisation. So it's um, um, listening to uh, and attending to what matters to people, what's important to people in terms of their, their goals from the conversation or from the treatment or care or support packages that are, that are offered. So it's dignity, compassion, respect, personalisation, coordination, um, which I think we all agree nowadays that word coordination seems to have had a lot of traction recently. Uh, and the last one is enablement. And I think enablement is something that's often forgotten. It's, it's about what people already know, what people are already doing, and how they'd like to build on what they already know, and how to build on what they, they can do and what they'd like to achieve in their lives. So those are the four principles that we've set out in the Health Foundation. And now just a bit about how, the, how those were defined. Who, who should be defining what is patient or person-centred care? We, we believe that it, it's patients themselves that should be defining it, individual people that should be defining it. Yes, this is what the system did for me or didn't do for me. Um, yes. Do, do those around the table ag agree with that as a definition? Um, the work that we've done on it um, uh, has focused on some things that are very consonant with that, um, but we, we've looked at it in a different way. For instance, we focus on health effectiveness. So are the services helping you to get well and stay well? Now, no service is going to do that unless it also gives you dignity and respect. Um, and also personalizes your health. But you, you can get a fully physician-centered service that is also uh, providing dignity and personalization, but that's not going to be necessarily health effective. So that's uh, so kind of gone up a, a level in terms of principles there, um, but they're entirely consonant. The second thing is about health efficiency. Only those services that are necessary to get you um, well and to keep you well uh, should be done. But that also entails things like coordination, integration of services, competence. Um, other uh, two other kind of, well, uh, there are more than two, but one is ethical. Uh, the services really have to focus on competence of providers. So you get, don't get physicians, for instance, doing what psychologists should really do. Um, and uh, then that also means that you are focusing on reducing a revolving door in clinics. Um, collaborative is part, um, obviously, an essential part. It has to be meaningful. The outcomes have to be meaningful to the patient. For instance, uh, 
blood tests are considered an outcome, but they're not particularly meaningful um, necessarily. Um, empowering, which is um, what you called enablement, Alf, absolutely essential. And that feeds into the issue of collaboration as well. Also, I think trustworthy. You have to have um, uh, services that you can trust are really looking out for your needs first and foremost. And those are our principles, and they're entirely consonant. And they, uh, it's just a question of which leads into which, and which do you choose to be the first principles. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you very much, Rupert. Dave, you would <coughs> add something to that. Yes, I have the perhaps the advantage, I hope, of not having spent a lot of time in the healthcare system before I almost died and got saved by it. So I'm grateful for it, but at the same time, as I've begun attending conferences for the last several years, I've noticed what can only be described as an enormous disconnect, and I know many people in this room are well aware of this. So often, and we, we can all take action on this by complaining to the people responsible. I attend events about patients where there are hardly any patients involved. Uh, it's, and the, the folly that results, the intellectual folly that results is like Freud asking, what do women want? <laughs> you know? uh, and when you might just try asking them, you know, last year there was a conference about the patient's role in decision making in Boston without a single patient speaking. Uh, the, the conference organizers should be called out on this. I, have, I see announcements almost every month about <coughs> conferences, conferences about health care with all stakeholders and the invited speakers are insurance companies, device makers, and so on, and not the ultimate stakeholder. We need to be clear, be conscious of the words we're using. A stakeholder is somebody who has something at stake in the outcome. And the ult we cannot optimize this industry around the value of the ultimate stakeholder if we don't actively invite them to the conversation. I applaud BMJ for having so many actual sick people here you know, at this event. Well, that's, some people say, well, we're all patients someday. Well, no, you know, until you are a carer with a real problem on your hands. I know there's a, there's a woman named Leslie Kernison, who's a geriatrician who attended a big deal conference in San Francisco last fall and was, a, was about to go on stage talking about the problems of being a caregiver for an elder when one of the conference organizers said, don't talk about that, talk about changing our culture. Well, that's, that's not patient-centered. So, and the problem is that culture change requires changing the context of the conversations. And in Angela's book published in 2002, one section in chapter one is patient, client, consumer, or user. You know, it, the context shift will alter how you look at what we should be talking about. Thank you, Dave. Jeremy. Um, I just wanted to say that I really like the four principles that Alf has uh, outlined and National Voices has sort of informally adopted them. Um, they obviously don't embrace every aspect of good quality care, but they focus on the things that distinguish person-centered care from kind of bog-standard good care, if you like. Uh, 
So uh, and they're a very useful shorthand, um, and they align quite quite well with what is most often, I think, missing, uh, which is the coordination, which is the personalization, and particularly the, the enablement. Uh, I think of the four principles, the enabling bit, the enablement part, is the one that I think, I agree with Alf, is most, most frequently overlooked. Uh, we had um, a meeting with a senior politician yesterday, and I won't say who it was, but it was quite clear during the course of that conversation that the bit of person-centered care that this person most struggled to understand was the enabling bit. Uh, and so I think if there's one thing that I like more than anything else in that definition is uh, shifting the emphasis away from a more traditional concern with the protection of the vulnerable. And I think the, a bit of political context, I think, around in this parliament, in this country, um, the health debate has been hugely dominated by the after effects of what went wrong in mid-staffs and in Winterbourne view. And there's been an understandable political response that I think has reinforced the, the need to demonstrate that the NHS and care systems more generally are looking after people and protecting them from bad things happening. And I think that's been slightly at the expense of a narrative which gives more emphasis to actually, although it's incredibly important to protect the vulnerable, it's also really important uh, to enable people, uh, not least because there's a very strong evidence base that that is a good way to uh, promote better health outcomes. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Sarah wanted to add something there. Uh, I realised uh, during my presentation that I didn't say that I'm Swedish, but I'll add that now first. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, uh, on, on Dave's note about conferences, I, I completely agree there's a lot of conferences going on saying they involve all stakeholders, that, uh, that they actually have no patients, uh, not as on the speaker list and not as participants even. But there is one example that I want to highlight, that that's the World Parkinson Congress, which is a Congress, the only scientific Congress in Parkinson's and probably a lot of other diseases that actively invites all stakeholders, where one third of the participants are patients, and there are pa patients on all boards, committees, and, and, and the executive execution of the conference. And that's, uh, that's uh, a unique thing, and it really creates a very unique environment as well. I'm sure they will agree with me, because he spoke at the, at the, at the one in, in, uh, in Montreal two, one and a half years ago. But I also want to mention a bit about the Swedish view on patient-centered care. Uh, Angela Coulter and, and uh, Elizabeth Doctor were invited a few years ago to write a report for the Swedish uh, Agency for Health and Care Services analysis about how evaluating Sweden's, how patient-centered how patient Swedish healthcare is. And I was invited to comment on that at the, at the meeting in, in, in our politician week in, in the summer. And my, com my comment then was, main, main, main comment was that they haven't, they, the, the, the patient-centered care wasn't defined. But you can evaluate it without defining it, really. So it, it was a very interesting uh, report, and it's been very appreciated in Sweden as well. But what my, in my view, the problem with pa is that patient-centered care is defined according to the current system. And we all know that the current system needs to change. So mm -hmm. it's a sort of a moving target. Thank you very much, Sarah. That leads nicely on to a another thing we can talk about, which is, which I wanted to ask Angela Coulter about, which is that Treating patients with respect and providing care based on their needs and preferences is really, you might argue, no more than good medicine. And a lot of doctors and nurses <coughs> and other health professionals strive every day to do that. And I suppose um, it would just be nice to hear your thoughts on what's different, what, what is it we're trying to do that's different to that, and why, why is there the big push now? What's, what's led to us um, really feeling now is the moment when this has got to happen? 
Well, um, whether the, there's a big push on now that's different, I'm not so sure, because um, some of us have been arguing these things for a very long time. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, most doctors, most nurses, most clinicians um, uh, do their utmost to treat people with dignity and respect and uh, to listen to them and so on. Um, and sometimes circumstances prevent that. But I think we're talking about something that's more ambitious than that. Um, in talking about enablement, we're, we're really challenging um, the way health, health services are currently delivered because they tend to be delivered in a disenabling way. Um, sort of treating people with kindness and empathy and so on is terribly important. But if you're saying to them, you know, we are the experts who can solve all your problems, just bring your problems to us and there's nothing you can do about it, then we're creating passivity and dependency and disenabling them. And the, the other way, and I think most people around the table are, are really... Um, calling for health services and people who work in them to go further and recognising that everybody, no matter what their health problem um, or indeed their family's health problem, comes with various assets. They, they bring a lot of skills, knowledge and experience that is absolutely crucial for managing their health care. So um, what I think we need is, is a shift to... Um, a much more kind of part partnership-based approach, which recognises that the assets that people are bringing and helps to bring those out and helps to empower people in a way that persuades them and recognises that actually, if their health is going to improve, you know, they have much much of the power within themselves. So yes, they need the specialist advice that doctors and others can provide but they will have to live with it, um, as Sarah said, um, live with it all the time. And therefore, um, supporting people's own efforts is absolutely critical for improving the outcomes that Rudolf quite rightly says is why we all use healthcare. Mm. And what about how we can tell if it's happening? How, how can one measure the patient-centeredness of healthcare? Well, we can measure it, and indeed um, there, there are umpteen measures, far too many in my view. Um, if you're an academic, you get lots of credence for, for um, and kudos for <coughs> developing yet another new measure, which you can call, you know, the Angela Coulter measure of something or other. Um, and that's actually not helpful. Um, we, we've, we've got measures, we just need to use them. And I think that, and there are there are a number of initiatives underway now that are trying to sort of get agreement on which are the be best ways to measure things. There are lots of problems with a lot of the measures we've got, um, but broadly they fall into two groups, and I think we need both. Standardised measures that get at the issues that are not covered by the biomedical markers. So, so yes, we need those. You will have carry on <laughs> measuring blood pressure and all the rest of it. But we also need to measure the things that Alf was talking about, the enablement, the compassion, all the rest of the, th the things that are important to patients. And they can be measured. They usually involve self-completion questionnaires that are specially designed and validated. Many of them, however, are designed by clinicians who haven't bothered to involve patients in their development. So those ones are not helpful and we should avoid those. But. Uh, Increasingly now, people are recognising that patients have to be involved in developing those kinds of measures. But then there are other measures which are perhaps not quite so clearly 
measured and they aren't um, they're not going to produce a national picture for you but actually they're even more important and that is the patient's goals themselves mm. so at the beginning of a course of treatment it's really important to find out from the patient what they want what they what what the effects on their of their illness or condition are on their life and what they would like to change and record that and then follow it up and find out whether whether you've achieved or together you've achieved uh, what the patient said were their own goals. So those two types of measures I think are crucial. Rosamond. Um, I was wondering with that you can measure you, you almost need to set the parameters of what the patient is allowed to say. Mm. Um, I mean, so for example, I could set the goals that I want to be able to, you know, have a blood glucose of X, Y, and Z, and you need to give me X, Y, and Z so I can get there. What I would actually like, if if I was given a magic wand, though, is to be able to um, test my long-term blood sugar at home. I'd like someone to research that and produce a, a model. I could have that. I would like to have um, my eye care done at the same time as all my other care, so that I don't have to have time off, off work. Now. I would quite like, actually, if we're going to have a magic wand, I would quite like the doctors to be working after my work hours so I can get to them. Mm. Now, at what point am I allowed to start asking for these things? And that, uh, so, so let's, so you could have patient-centred care based on my physical health goals and patient-centred care based on how I, uh, what's going to make my life easier, and they are not necessarily the same thing. Um, and, yeah, that's all. <laughs> Tessa. I wonder also there's an element here in here uh, with respect to patient-centered care is that um, it's, it's care when you need it. So much of care is provided in gobbets which are defined by your hospital consultant or GP who calls you up for a routine appointment and it's still very frustrating that on those moments when you actually do need a decision to be made, you do need some support. Certainly within the NHS, you still cannot email me people, you cannot get a swift reply to a, um, a, a crucial question to you, and you just feel that you're dealing with an organisation that's technologically in the dark ages and doesn't function um, in the same way that almost any other industry functions. And I suppose that that might be one element of patient-centred is, is its responsiveness. Um, oh. Michael, let me hear from Yeah, I, I just think there are, uh, I mean, when we talk about goals, um, there needs to be a conversation about the shared goals and not just these are my goals and these are my clinicians' goals, what are our active shared goals? But that, that's one thing, and Rosamond highlighted it. But in terms of changes, this is a huge deep-seated culture change that we are after. But my, my, I guess my real challenge, you know, I, like so many people around the table, are living issues every single minute of every single day. There are real-life things that could be done now that don't require great big policy shifts, that don't require culture changes. You know, Tessa mentioned the ability to email, the ability to get blood tests texted to you, the ability to have a Skype conversation are just everyday things. And I just wonder, with this person-centred care whether why can't we just even shift the dial one notch to deliver some real practical solutions that would then allow that culture change to take to, to gain momentum if we keep talking at the top level we'll never get some practical results 
Thank you very much, Michael. Paul. I think it's really worthwhile thinking about this uh, from the point of view of what, where power has already shifted. We've had these conversations, I've had these conversations for 30 years, um, and they go round and round. So it's, if you step back and think, how have patients got more power now than they did 30 years ago, then you get a different view and they have more information and they've just got global amounts of information. They've got a voice, they've got a public voice, they've got Twitter, they've got Facebook, they've got solidarity groups, patients um, like me, uh, you know, support groups for people with newly diagnosed breast cancer. Um, <coughs> so they've got solidarity and they've now got biosensor data and data that is their own. And the revolution will come from those dimensions rather than talking about how doctors have to change because doctors do want to change but they're held in systems that hold them in aspic. Thank you very much. Sarah. Yes, I really like Angela's uh, the, the definition or description of, of, the, of the different measures. But speaking of goals, I mean, the clinicians, they don't know, and I don't know how well I can be. So it's very difficult if I, I want to say I don't want to have any, any freezing of gait with my Parkinson's. Well, nobody knows if that's possible. So that's one issue. And the thing about uh, what, what Tessa said about opening hours, uh, that's a, that is, of course, an issue in Sweden as well. We can't email. We can, but it's not reimbursed and, and Skype conversations and what have you. But I, I have another place I can turn for that. And that's that's what, what Paul was talking about, the global network of patients that I'm uh, connected to. Because I know that any time of night and day, I can connect to one or more patients around the world that can help me with any, anything I want. And that's something that healthcare is missing out on. It's a huge knowledge base there that, that actually is, is, is lost. Thank you, Sarah. Amir? Um, I just wanted to bring back the, the, the idea of partnership. Um, I mentioned this partnership of trust that I've, I've sort of come across, and you, you've also talked about it. But actually, I think this partnership of trust is actually recognizing that there's three experts in the room. Um, the patient is an expert in terms of the symptoms, in terms of their experience, the family, and you know, you, you've mentioned um, you know, the, the knowledge that you've gained from interacting with people from around the world. And of course, Dave, you've written many books on the subject as, as, as an empowered patient. Um, but then we were talking to Alf earlier about the fact that he's a long-term conditions lead in his CCG, and, and he's working with his rest of the team on m developing a long-term conditions team, if you like, or a service. Um, he might have ideas about how that might work. If we leave it to patients on their own, they might get there, but they may not. However, this partnership working, when the patient and clinician comes together, and then if we take the data, the, the, the record, the information that's available, and make it available to both experts, patient and clinician, then something very exciting happens. The thing about trust, though, is you can't see it. You can measure it, I suppose, but it's always difficult. But there's something else. It's not just about partnership of trust. I think there's two other things there. There's also a partnership of behaviours, and I think there's also a partnership of responsibilities. I just want to bring one other point in, and that's Atul Gwande's um, thought about the fact that medicine's now become more like a pit stop for patients, where uh, it's not the one-to-one. -one. We always think of it being a single... Uh, interaction between a, a doctor or a nurse and a patient but actually he says no it's not it's a, it's a pit stop where there's a whole team of people who are coming so although you might only be going to your neurologist for an hour I bet in that time there's a whole load of different types of people coming together and I think it's one of the things that we've sort of forgotten is the complexity of healthcare means that you do need that team of people you do need to think about the pit stop and we need to think about from a provider's perspective have we got the right people around the table in that pit stop? 
what support are they going to need to ensure that that consultation is as good as it can be and how can we try and ensure that that patient comes away with the best things. My final comment is about something called Health Pledge that our patients, these patients with access to their records and whatnot, have come up with. It's part of NHS Change Day and um, they've asked everyone to make a pledge for something that you can do to improve your health and it's health, www.healthpledge.co.uk. I've been using it inside the consulting room so when people come in with depression, diabetes, whatever, heart disease, I'll, at the end of it I'll say, by the way, some patients have asked to do um, a health pledge. Would you like to pledge something? Go, What's all that about, Dr. Han? And I'll say, well, it could be an activity, it could be food and drink, um, or it could be some sort of exercise, pick one. And then I'll say, right, I pledge two, and then it's over to the patient. And it's amazing how the patients will say, um, I'll stop taking chocolates. They'll come up with whatever they think is important. For them. It's their goal set. But what's happening is we have an exercise. When are you going to start? Um, I'll start uh, immediately. Or give another example. Um, I'm going to go swimming. I'm going to go every day. How long for? For the rest of my life. When was the last time you went? Five years ago. <laughs> Do you think that's realistic? So, so again, there's a bit of engagement going on, a bit of support, a bit of shared goal setting, as, as Michael's talking about. But at the end of it, they'll say, I pledge this. And at the end of it, I'll ask, Do you want to put your name up? And it's on a website. Shall we? Do you want it public so people can see it? And as soon as they hit the save button, they now know the world can see it. <laughs> But what's important is there's a sense of ownership. And then what I do is I write it into the record. The patient has pledged to do this. It's part of the care plan that they can read. Because then when they come back a month from now, I'll say, hey, you pledged this. How are you doing in terms of your goals? It's a little bit more practical and real. Thank you, Amir. Primary care is, is the place where most patients interact with the health system. And... Um, uh, moving now on to the how we can actually make this cultural shift or this practical shift in big and small ways. I wondered if I could ask people around the table what they think primary care needs to do to, to make both the, the small shifts we've talked about but also this much bigger complete cultural shift. And I'll then, we've got several GPs around the table. We've got Amir, we've got um, Navjoit and we've got um, Paul and we'll come back and perhaps get their responses to those. If, if, if those others around the table want to just make a start, what should primary care do? Sarah. So I'm going to stick my neck out a bit and say I think primary care needs to change. I, 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 it should be designed to support self-care. It's, it's about the enablement that, that, that uh, someone talked about earlier, uh, several people, and it should, it should be reimbursed and the design and quality uh, could, should be evaluated according to how well they support self-care. Thank you. Oh. Um, yes, I, I, I agree. And I think if primary care could take a systematic approach to doing that by putting in place collaborative care and support planning and doing something like building the house of care locally, we can start to move towards a much more systematic way of supporting people when they're not with us, when they're out in the world, which is, as you say, 99.9999% yeah, yeah. of your lives. And it should be a team <coughs> effort with the patient and their family carers as part of the team and not just GPs. So we have a system of primary care that's too, uh, in England, dominated by a particular business model of um, self-employed GPs in quite smallish practices. You don't get the benefits of scale. You don't get the benefits of cooperation. You don't get the alignment, proper alignment between GPs, pharmacists, nurses, social workers, etc., etc. So it's just, it's too bitty and fragmented. Um, 
The data that I've seen is that over 50%, perhaps 60% of um, uh, consultations with GPs are driven by mental, behavioral, and social issues. So uh, in order to have a GP service that is ethical and focuses on competence, you need to have a team which includes nurse, psychologists, clinical social worker, um, so that those issues are addressed fully and competently, and because they're key to um, helping a person um, get well and stay well and not need to come back. Now, uh, the, the physician-centered culture, even a lot of the discussion around the table today is assuming that general practice involves just the physician. Um, and that is the problem. And we've got a lot of talk about doctors. Um, when I find that a quaint term, it's a bit like calling women ladies, uh, because it maintains a social inequality and a professional in inequality. Instead of looking at what is needed for patients to get well and stay well. And so I think um, that is one of the key things that needs to change in terms of general practice. How you do that um, comes down to commissioning issues and um, also uh, auditing uh, patient-centered uh, health outcomes uh, from the patient's uh, perspective and by the patient. We've also got uh, uh, some issues around the, the table about patient representation. Um, and I'd like to sort of drop this into the uh, mix. We, it's not possible to have patients as representatives. Um, I certainly don't represent people with HIV, stroke, or epilepsy, although I have all three myself. What we need to start looking towards are patients engaging in monetary democracy, um, looking at what does and doesn't work in uh, services in terms of a larger set of principles about patient-centeredness. In primary care or primary health services, um, this is one of the points of leverage about how to create change. Because actually I disagree that most clinicians or most physicians uh, in particular want to change. Um, I think the, those who do are a distinct minority. Yes, well, as I work in secondary care, I just wanted to make the point that the question within it asked, what does primary care need to do? And I think if we're truly going to be person-centred, I think we've got to move away from primary and secondary and tertiary, because I think it's so important that when we're designing systems together, and I think that that's the key to this, is that you have to put the person in the centre of the process and then allow all of our systems to, to f resource the patient or the person. Um, and I think that we've got to move away from those terms. So I just wanted to make that point that I see this as a, it is a cultural shift, there's no doubt about it, because there's still a massive barrier between, you know, your health record that you, you and your patients might hold um, and actually as soon as you get to the hospital the whole thing breaks down and they start again. So it's just we must start thinking about the patient's needs throughout all of their care and how we will service it. And what's, what's stopping us doing that then? I think, I think the current design of the systems, to be honest. Um, so I think that um, every secondary care physician would want to add value to a patient's care. Some patients want us to be paternalistic. Some patients <coughs> want to have a lot of control. And I think the key is to design the system that will allow for us to provide the best evidence-based care, to do it in a safe way, but 
to allow variance, variability, to actually ask people what they want to do. And I think our systems at the moment are very much designed about uh, the best evidence creates the best guidelines. The systems are therefore created to protocolize the guidelines. Uh, so you can end up with a factory-style way of processing patients. And it does remove the variance because, and, and then we get monitored and we have targets to meet and we, you know, so the whole way in which we think healthcare has been good or should be better has often been to the detriment of variance within the treatment. And I think we have to trust each other. We have to allow ourselves to not always start from scratch. Uh, to that physicians have to allow themselves to not know everything um, and to trust the patients when they want us to do that. But there are other patients that want very much that structured approach. So we just have to be able to do it. And I think our systems currently are kind of designed against it. Thanks, Ben. Paul, um, your views on, on that, the, what, what's preventing primary care or care generally, as Ben is saying, from from taking the necessary leap or change. Um, I'm going to I'm going to answer a different different version of that question, which is I think that um, if you we spend a lot of time talking about communities of practice amongst the professionals, but there's also a whole community of solidarity around every patient, which is just sitting there and waiting to be used. And general practices and general practice teams are the sort of the informational Googles of their communities. If you measure emotional content of interactions in your community against numbers per year. You have the police up here with a very few number of very highly emotional. And over here you have shops, which is very low, intentional, low intensity emotions, uh, but lots of them. And up here you have general practice teams who have high emotional and high numbers, and they know their communities. So what we need to answer your question are a set of tools that will allow those teams to actually get out and haul in those community assets knowing that you know bill has just come out of uh, uh, it, um, uh, treatment for schizophrenia age 26 is a great gardener and it would be great to match up with mary who's 86 and wants a gardening all that stuff and we could do that but the governance and the ability to do it you're getting close to it amir in some of this stuff you're talking about in pledging but i think we could go a lot further in doing that thank you alex um I apologise in advance because I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm really interested in a separate question, which is what does primary care need from us? Why, why are we not answering, asking that question? Because by asking that question, you'll then be able to see, okay, because I actually don't know anything about what my you know, GP surgery needs from me. But, but once we get those things on the table and then we get what I want from my GP surgery, we can try and work out where the overlap is. And um, I worked with our PPG um, to ask all our patients, you know, what is it that, that you want from this, your primary care? And I asked the doctors as well. And we all came together and talked about it. And from that, they talked about things like text messaging, things like online appointments, things like uh, being able to do repeat prescriptions. And because we've had those conversations, we have implemented them now. And now on my iPhone, I can order a repeat prescription and get it delivered to my door like my internet shopping, which is what I'm used to as a, as a patient and a person in the 21st century. And it saves a lot of work and hassle for my GP. And, and I now only need to see my GP when I'm in crisis, which allows them time to focus on the patients that really need more more care but 
I mean, but basically, I mean, the thing is as well, you, by asking those questions of what does the GP need from us, mm. you're really going to work out where there's a disconnect between why we're not in a partnership model. And we only get to a partnership model when then those two things, what we're measuring and what patients want and what GPs want are actually the same thing. Now, what, what's your response to that? What do, what do you as a GP need from your patients? No, I think that's excellent. I think there is something that GPs need, which you can't give us, which is more hours in the day, <laughs> more time and more money. <laughs> um, and that's a massive part of it. I think, I think just even having the headspace and the time to be able to think about these issues is something that's so difficult when you're just busting a gut to do your day-to-day -day job and be safe and give give people at the minimum what they need. Um, so I think, I mean, the things that are stopping, you know, you ask what are the things that are stopping primary care from being able to deliver some of these things? I think that there's definitely a resource issue and a time issue, no question. But then there are other things, you know, having... Um, targets and incentivized payment schemes which you mentioned they they undoubtedly stop you from being truly fo truly patient focused if your focus is slightly you know aligned to the patient but not truly necessarily what the patient wants and there is also this um culture of um fear and uncertainty in this kind of overdiagnosis era that Iona Heath wrote about recently where sometimes you are chasing your own priorities that, that aren't necessarily the patient's priorities because you're worried about making a mistake or you're worried about missing missing something or misdiagnosing something. Again, fueled by probably not having enough time to devote to all the, the other issues that you need to be able to think about. And I think there's also a shift sort of related to the sort of issue around overdiagnosis, overmedicalization, around I think a shift, certainly in the patients I'm seeing, where you're seeing so many more people who are worried well, and of course prevention is a big part of, of what all healthcare pr providers do, but um, where the number of people you're seeing who are well versus the number of people who you're seeing are sick has changed, and how much time you'll be able to devote to those different needs has changed too. Um, so those are some of the barriers and how we get to a point where we can have that conversation I think that would be a great conversation to have and I think that there are some things where we could become more patient-centered by knowing one another's needs I think there there are systems things too which also need to change as well. Thank you Navjot that brings us on perhaps to a broader conversation about the co-production and co-creation of health which is something we have a, a lot of discussion about and particularly with people living with long-term conditions and I suppose it would be very good to hear from Sarah and from Michael and others about how health systems are doing. Are they doing enough to make co-creation and co-production of healthcare a reality? Sarah. Yes. Well, the, one, the biggest problem is that co-production is currently defined from the point of view of healthcare. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's sort of the elephant in the room in a way. And I mean, having a... a reasonably complicated and complex chronic disease is basically a full-time job. And as, as, as we all know, more than 50% of the population have one or more chronic diseases, whereas more than half of that, more than 25%, have two or more conditions. And healthcare is, as we know, not, not fit for dealing with multiple chronic conditions with its silos. And, and that's, that's a problem. And also going on from the the system change that was talked about earlier. I, I've been thinking for a while there should be a, a model like IKEA has for building kitchens. 
I'm not sure if you have it here in, in the UK, but in Sweden we can either build our kitchen all by ourselves. We can get get the parts and build it ourselves. We can have it. We can have get, get help by des- designing it and then take home the parts and build it ourselves. Or we can have help with all of it, and that's sort of the small, medium, large model of, of healthcare. I'm thinking of. But going on from that, I mean, the patients who really succeed in co-creating their health or creating our health ourselves. We don't, we don't care about the healthcare system. We, we sort of circumnavigate it and organize healthcare around us instead of fi- finding our way through the system. So I'm sure, sure Michael and Rosamond will agree with me on that and saying that it's not possible to use the system without knowing how to cut it, cut the, cu- cut the corners yourself. Thank you very much, Sarah. Michael. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. If you want to manage your complex conditions you do it your way mm-hmm. and your healthcare providers have to work around you um, and that isn't easy because the system doesn't allow for them to work around you because they've got to work in their boxes and in their silos and in their systems so you know Alf and I were talking just earlier I've got a situation with two conditions where two departments at the same hospital can't even input blood results on the same system my primary care blood results can't be seen at my hospital my records are on a USB stick, but the only hospitals I can't put the USB stick in are UK hospitals. But I can go to America and I can put them in in America. So what I'm saying is to manage your health is absolutely a service as a full-time job, but it's not co-creation at all. It is two systems fighting against each other effectively to try and come up with a situation that works for you, the individual, on one given day. It's, and, and that goes back to there are just so many things on a day-to-day basis you can do to build that co-creation rather than starting up there. Let's just start at grassroots level. Thank you very much. Dave? Well, and this business of co-creation is why uh, my book is titled Let Patients Help, which is the chant at the end of my TED talk. Uh, Nothing that I talk about has to do with overthrowing medicine. I mean, it saved my life, you know, and the patients knowing more does not undermine the other things that doctors know. When I went to the doctor and discovered I was dying, I didn't even know I was sick. I certainly couldn't have diagnosed what my problem was. I couldn't have removed my kidney by myself and so on. And yet, today my oncologist says, and for what's quoted in the BMJ two years ago, saying that he doesn't know if I could have survived, if I could have tolerated enough medicine, if it weren't for the extra information I got from a patient community online. Now, this is additional value. Um, I I want to acknowledge the people who said having a chronic condition is a full-time job. Uh, This is the first time I've announced this publicly, but last month, my primary physician told me that I, am, I have prediabetes and I have to start paying attention around the clock to what I do and I will tell you it is annoying. <laughs> it is. I, I'm, it just irritates me that I have to be conscious all the time now about what I do and I'm having to adjust my mind. I'm having to think differently. Co-production, I think, ought to be interpreted in terms of sharing the work. You know, today, so many physicians feel overburdened because their view and perhaps their reality is that they have to do everything. In other industries, we've figured out that there are tiers of work. 
that can be done. In the United States, we're having some really interesting studies on the benefits of having community health workers, CHWs, people who have useful knowledge that not only is resident in the community, it's very accessible. And the, this issue of convenience cannot be overstated. In business, if you want people to do something, you better make it convenient for them to do it. This is why, when I first saw this, I was disgusted. Uh, going down a highway, there's a McDonald's on the right, and what do you know, there's another one being built on the left. Why? Because they get so much more business from the people going the other direction if it's more convenient to, uh, for them to pop in there. Atul Gawande himself spoke at a conference I was speaking at a couple of years ago, and he was talking about the, the um, arising uh, presence of retail clinics. You know, walk into a pharmacy and they have somebody there, not an MD usually, who can take care of your routine concerns. When this first came out, he said, he thought, who needs this? This is ridiculous. But then when the time came for him to get his flu shot, even though working in Brigham and Women's Hospital, he could have gotten it any time, he never got around to it, and he ended up having it done at a retail clinic in his neighborhood. This issue of sharing the workload with different tiers of people and making it convenient. You know why people Google more than they visit doctors? Susanna Fox did a study on this, because it's a lot easier to get an appointment with Google. <laughs> so this is, this is no small issue. We wonder why people don't do things. And you can spend as long as you want, as a result of which she found that people are more likely to follow the, their final page in Google, the advice there, than they are to follow a doctor's advice. Thanks, Dave. Paul? Yeah, so um, primary care is where I go when i completely exhausted looking on Google, Wikipedia, and whatever articles <laughs> were open access about the condition with which I'm struggling. So, you know, there's a pre-primary care. Um, one of the few examples where we do actually meet patients uh, where they are in the UK at least is if you uh, are in an unfortunate enough situation that you attempt to Google suicide methods on Google, in which case the first thing that comes up above all search engines is the telephone number for the Samaritans and an, an urgent message to call them. Now, when you type in whatever other condition you might be dealing with in primary or secondary care, what comes up is a mess. You know, there's a bit of Wikipedia, there's a bit of the NHS, there's a bit of the BBC, there's sometimes an odd uh, section from Channel 4's, uh, you know, embarrassing bodies program that can sometimes be more <laughs> alarming than illustrative. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Patients are going there and, and we're ignoring it and we're still in the academic community treating the internet like it's a bunch of uh, nerds in their basement discussing Star Trek, as opposed to realizing that actually that's where the action is. In terms of co-production, I think one of the reasons the internet has been a great enabler for this is because everyone looks fairly equal on the internet. Um, when I lived in America, my first experience in primary care was, you know, you go to the, the GP, whether it's for a cold or for cancer, you're in there uh, wearing a paper dressing gown and no clothes on. And you're in there with a doctor with a white coat, says doctor in big letters, and there's a bunch of degrees from, ha uh, from Harvard on, on the wall behind them. You meet that same person on Twitter, and you know, their handle is ArsenalFan321, um, and you get to, to see all about their hangovers and what their kids did at Christmas and their retweets of silly John Lewis adverts or whatever. It, it, it's a great equalizer. Um, and so I think that's where we've seen a lot of great advocates come through and, and a lot of the work the great sort of e-patients have done, many of them around this room, ha has inspired other people. 
I do still have a little pause in my head though, in that the people who, who've done all this fantastic work um, get recognized by the traditional establishment by being given the same merit badges mm -hmm. as work in that old system. Mm -hmm. And you know, through tremendous hard work that people are doing, people are doing PhDs, people are you know, uh, writing research papers, they're, they're getting papers in the BMJ. This is all fantastic stuff and, and it's a change because we're, integrate, we're integrating patients, infiltrating them into the cultural rituals that separate the them from us. But, again, it's just cracking away at the existing system and saying, oh, look, if we just put a little layer of icing mm -hmm. on this existing sponge, then, then everything's really different. And I think the question is, how could we, we rebuild that from the ground up? Because the potential is huge. The self-management that you do with Dr. Google actually just saved the healthcare system a, a great deal of effort. The way in which I help a peer going through, you know, what I've gone through, has a great deal of value, and yet it's it's completely invisible. It's it's you know negative energy in the way the health system uh, views things. But if we were to harness that, that could well be the way in which compassionate care, harnessed <coughs> from the patients, uh, actually leads the transformation that we need without increasing the cost. Because you know that 99.9 percent, .9%, Sarah, that you're living with your condition, if you'd just donate one percent of it to everyone else like you, you're already giving out more care than your, than your neurologist, because guess what? There's millions of you. As I am. Yeah, absolutely. I'm here. I'm really pleased. We should reimburse Sarah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really pleased that you've talked about the pre-care, because I, I also thought that the first post of call isn't um, primary care, it's actually in your own home. And actually, it starts with yourself individually. Once something happens, um, and you know you start to feel a bit worried something's not right or oh, I've got a headache I'll take paracetamol or whatever it might be it's not getting any better so what do you do next you talk to your family friends perhaps you do go on Google um, and see things and three-quarters of the information on Google's great but a quarter isn't and if you don't quite know what you're doing it can be a bit dodgy but what I've seen is that people will keep going and some people with horrendous chest infections and all the rest of it will wait three or four weeks until they're dying and ask for the doctor and other people sort of within a very short space of time. But whatever happens in everyone's case, they continue and continue, continue until suddenly they lose confidence in their ability. Whatever it is that's been keeping them going dissipates. Now this is the challenge because when that dissipation happens, it happens relatively quickly and then it's, oh my God, I'm scared now. I want something now. And what we're seeing at the moment, and it's, in, it's ironic that today on the front page of every single national newspaper, A&E is creaking. So we've got to start thinking about patient-centered care because there's a lot of patient-centered people who are turning up in A&E at the moment. Why? Because of two things, I think. One is that they've lost confidence in their own ability to be able to do whatever they're doing, and they're now turning for help. And the second thing, and this is also really important, is when they decide, I need to do something, they also want to know, what are the chances that I'm not going to get a closed door, that I'm not going to be told to go away? And so if they have the confidence that they are going to be able to get to see their doctor, nurse, or whatever, they'll go there. But if, on the other hand, they don't, then they'll end up going to walk-in centre, out-of-hours, A&E, and all the rest of it. Thank you very much. Jeremy. I was going to ask a question, really, and it actually links with Amir's point, but also with Navjoit's earlier about the, the so-called worried well. Uh, so there's a community of people who are living with complex conditions who've worked out what they need and how to manage, uh, and there's a whole set of issues around how they can get the system to work for them. There's another set of people who are not patients uh, and don't know if they're well or not. That's why they're worried. 
uh, and which is why the term worried well is problematic. But I am genuinely curious and whether there's any wisdom in, in this around this table on because I constantly hear clinicians complaining about the number of patients who come to them who are not really that unwell. Uh, why are they worried? Are they really well? Uh, and are there ways in which we can engage the kind of self-management efficacy potential of a bunch of people who are not yet people with lived experience, if you like. They're pre-patients. Uh, uh, everybody's moaning about them and it doesn't seem fair. Is there a, is there a better way of engaging the wider population uh, without sending the signal that we're no longer interested in seeing you, we can't afford to, you're taking up too much time. Rosamond. Um, I had an interesting conversation um, with a surgeon about this as well, who had, was saying exactly the same things, um, if only, you know, 90% of the people that my GP wife sees are, it, it are actually coming back again and coming back again and coming back again. And I think, I suspect it's partly, I don't know, but I suspect it's partly the model that doctors seem to be taught that you cure. And those of us who aren't, don't get cured are, are really problematic, and that includes people who are pre-patients, if you like, because we're, they're in a similar position in a way in that they're not... Uh, if I keep going because I'm still worried, because I'm not reassured, I haven't been cured, I haven't been made to better, I haven't had the terrible organ whipped out, and that... It, that seems to me to be something that is a physician heal thyself thing. If you're if you're seeing the same people, if you're seeing a worried well person, you're doing your job. That's great. That's that's just a good thing. Um, I don't see it. I think the problem has got to be in that's got to be an attitude change. Um, I, I, if I'm worried about something and I go to my doctor to find out, and it turns out that there was nothing to worry about, we've all done the right thing. Ben, I was. I was just going to make the point, because as a clinical lead of acute medicine, I'm at the front door of our hospital, and I constantly hear what Jeremy said from all manner of people in the country, that patients shouldn't go to A&E, that patients are choosing badly. It's nonsense, in my view, and I've been the clinical lead of acute medicine in our trust. We look after about a catchment area of 1% of the English population, it's over half a million people, and we have about 260 of those people come to our emergency department each day. Uh, that's not a lot. And half of those people arrive by ambulance. So actually there's a very small number of people that may be making a choice that, let's be honest, they didn't know was wrong when they made it. And my, my experience is that people do try to choose extremely carefully and that we should never blame our patients for choosing where they go. It's up to us to make sure that we are giving access to people with the right advice. Let's not talk about 111 in detail at the moment, but you know, we, we need to do that. That's our responsibility to give access to the information that is slightly better than Google. Um, yeah, you, what you sparked off in my mind, Jeremy, was, was the literature around medically unexplained symptoms and actually the literature is, is, is quite wide and quite deep and there is a, a very particular way that we can support people who have got medically unexplained symptoms who keep coming back to services again and again and again. It's just I'm not entirely sure that most people have actually accessed that literature. Mm -hmm. In terms of the, the worried well, I think we also have to look at maybe some of the broader information environment. So against the point in which many things that we knew as 
um, conditions now have preconditions. So we've mentioned already pre-diabetes. We know in dementia there's mild cognitive impairment. Uh, we sometimes see public health initiatives to say, you know, if you have a tickle that lasts more than 30 seconds, you probably have cancer. Go to your doctor immediately. So we have to reconcile, you know, what, what's really going on out there. But I must say, as someone who's used A&E recently, uh, and to, to Amy's point about feeling the door is shut on you, one does get the feeling that you're in a bidding war when you get in the front door with the gatekeeper to say, who's essentially coming in with a question mark over their head, do you belong to be here? And I've had a call with you know, ambulance services where you know, I'm sort of saying, hello, I think someone's you know, bleeding quite severely and things are going wrong. And you feel like you have to convince them and persuade them. And, and again, a little bit like the primary care. I don't call 999 for fun. I'm probably pretty worried by this point. And, and yet, this is, this is the assumption. So, so as a consumer, you can feel guilty even when you, when you do need it. So I think there does have to be uh, a bit more of a reconciliation about that. Um, unfortunately, one of the, I suppose, the other point about A&E is just how much of it is alcohol related, which uh, I, I guess, you know, um, when, we, when we're sort of, uh, it's very small, yeah. Yes, I want to tie back to, to Dave's uh, point about not wanting to, to overthrow doctors. Well, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> it's, we need, I mean, of course, healthcare may be able to change according to us, but it will take too much time. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we're, we're dependent on healthcare, so we can't really be revolutionaries, but we, we want to be. And uh, but the thing is, I, uh, when I go to primary care, which isn't actually often, it's more, more, more seldom than I go to my neurologist. So, and I, I, I often behave doctor-centered. Because I know that if I show them how much I know, they will, it will take more time. Yeah. So I, I don't show them how much I know because to save their time and to save mine. So, but the key to this is information and access to information to build knowledge for yourself. And that, uh, someone said just now about, about access to, to literature. And that's something that we need to think about as well. Tearing down the paywalls of, of medical literature. Michael. Yeah. I don't quite want to be a revolutionary, but I do want to be a partner and I do want to have a relationship. But I also do think that in person-centred care, there is a real role and a greater responsibility for the patient that has to play as well. You know, it's very easy to pass the buck onto the clinicians and onto the professionals, but we also have a real role to play because healthcare will only exist if we go from a culture of preventing things happening to treating them once they've happened because of all sorts of economic arguments and therefore there is a greater responsibility now you can only with that responsibility comes the education comes all the things that a lot of people are doing but actually we the patient also has to take some part of that responsibility you don't have a partnership and you don't have a relationship unless both parties work at it um, I'd like to sort of look at co-production in terms of co-producing change, not co-production necessarily uh, solely in terms of <coughs> what happens in terms of your clinical encounter. Um, so ha in that sense, of how do we create progress? And a number of us have been talking a little earlier of why are we still here, um, 20 years plus after, or 30 years uh, in mine, at least somebody else's experience. Um, and what I wanted to bring forward is the, the sort of image of the blind men and the elephant. We've all got one idea of what patient-centeredness is, um, but we don't really, unless we're the patient ourselves, we don't really know what it's like, what it, it, patient-centered re medicine really is, and what it can be. Uh, and even if we are a patient, we don't necessarily know the whole picture. 
What we, we're lacking, I think, is an analysis of the problems as a system. And nobody here, um, including myself, has been talking about the problems as a system. And it's a very distinct way of um, analyzing these, these issues. And it looks as not only the elements that need to go into creating change, but also how those relate to each other and how they relate to each other in the best way. And that also includes an analysis of the obstacles. A lot of what I've been hearing um, today, too, is promoting patient consumerism, which is a very American solution. Um, and I consider that an obstacle because it will be um, patients saying, well, I want, the, I want the pink pill instead of the blue pill, and why can't I have it? Um, and I've certainly been guilty of that myself at times. Uh, and, but it's, it, it is a problem. It is one of a, a series of problems uh, that patients contribute to in terms of creating obstacles to prevent change. Um, we're being given, we're being fed the uh, thing about consumerism as a solution. Um, the other thing that I think we need to know is that patients uh, have a lot of immense um, expertise to share, but we don't, as patients, know how to innovate. We need scientists first, and clinicians also, obviously, uh, to create the innovation, create the change. Um, and then we can redesign a system. And I think it does need to be um, revolutionary. Patient-centered medicine re needs to redefine what medicine is. It's not just about physicians. Thank you very much. Uh, what I want to do now is just ask everyone, uh, as we finish, uh, we, we, we began this conversation with quite a lot of expression from people about frustration that here we all were still, some of you have been involved in this for years, how can we speed up the momentum, how can we move policy to practice, um, that things are just not moving fast enough. So I wonder if we could just go around and each person uh, tell us the single most important step that you think is needed to move to a fully patient-centred care culture and practice. Elf. Measure it and incentivize it. I'm going to say listen to each other. Patients have got to listen to clinicians and clinicians need to listen to patients much, much more. That's the key. Always has been for from ad infinitum. That's the basis of the doctor-patient relationship. Tessa. Absolutely agree. Better conversations, greater listening, and I do think you probably do need to incentivize patient-centred care, reward it. Cool. I don't know what the single initiative will be, but I think if we move from consulting patients to giving patients decision-making power and power in authority, then many good things will flow from that that we won't be able to predict ahead of time. Dave. I too can't say that this is the single most important thing, but as a change agent, the and the public speaker, Mike, the question that always confronts me is what could be said that would make any difference? This weekend I was just reading uh, the Angela's 2002 book, The Autonomous Patient, and the table of contents looks like the agenda for what we need to do now, 12 years, 13 years later, uh, and it's clear to me that uh, we have a cultural block and one thing that would be really useful for us to do is figure out what's in the way of the culture accepting this change. People come out of school better trained, all right? I bet that a big important feature is that the dominant physicians, and I mean organizationally, 
are experts in how things used to be 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I don't insult them for that, but something needs to change. In technology, we used to have a software development method called waterfall, where you would figure out what the plan was gonna be from the top of the cliff and move one step at a time down. You would never go back. That method, there's not a single remaining company that can practice that way because reality has changed. You know, the physician leadership needs to be updated somehow. Angela. I hope I don't sound like a Luddite. Um, I wear a Fitbit. I diagnose myself online. I avoid going to see the doctor whenever I possibly can. But, so I really don't think we should put all our eggs in the technology basket. Um, I think healthcare is about relationships mm -hmm. and we have to find a way to identify those barriers that get in the way of the good relationships that we all want and need when we're really ill um, and make them work better. And I hope that um, in five years time, although that's a terribly short time when you think about the glacial this pace of change we've been through. But anyway, that we'll have a much more integrated system which will be much easier to navigate and where you know we have ready access to the right people who may not be trained clinicians sometimes um, to talk to when we have concerns about our health. Um, I think I'll go with Alf's uh, suggestion of measure and incentivize person-centered care. The way I'd frame it is I'd like to see um, the level of priority being given to person-centred care that we currently see in the NHS being given to living within budgets uh, and meeting waiting time targets. So let's make it as big a priority, if not bigger, than those things. Ben. Yeah, I think you can see that there are a lot of patient champions for this. Um, and I think that perhaps you know, you need some visible national clinical champions from the colleges, from the BMA or other places to talk about it. Um, because I think this is one of those issues that goes across the whole of medicine. So, you know, it doesn't fit nicely into one particular society's interest. So I think you need, you know, you need the clinical champions to come up with the patient champions and drive it. And then I think it'll work. Um, I think that power is accruing to patients faster than power is accruing to hospitals and organisations and professions. So you should look outside the citadels, to the web, to the planes, to seek for these changes. And what should happen is that some of the money that flows through the citadels should be made available on a very free basis to all sorts of people in small quantities to just trial this out. Not just trialling new apps, but actually trialling how Ben uses a social media platform like House to support Badly. Uh, <laughs> uh, vulnerable people in, in his community as they leave discharge, that sort of thing. And that's that uh, ability to throw a little bit of the money that's currently corralled into the hierarchy onto the web and learn from it, it would be a great thing to do. And I also think what the BMJ is doing in terms of this sort of meeting and Absolutely. raising the profile is fantastically important. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be cheeky and try and sum up a few and say measure incentivize um, education, but a type of education and that's paired learning. So learning between patients and professionals and that being promoted as something where everyone can learn from each other. Um, and there may be evidence of paired, different types of paired learning happening. It, there's one in Imperial between managers and doctors, but I think patients need to be part of that paired learning too. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with everyone that this is underpinned by conversations and listening and education and all of those things. But in terms of a single action, um, I think opening up medical records so that patients have access or own their records, um, I can't think of, that seems like the, the most effective way to me of making sure that that power and balance can be lessened somewhat, that people are speaking the same language and clinicians don't own certain terms and, and that sort of thing. I think that would be a really positive step in the right direction. There's so much great stuff that has been said already and there are so many important aspects of this, but if I were to choose, <coughs> my favorite one would be that <coughs> for everybody to see that we as patients, we need doctors that are ca that can, they're able to feel they're doing a good, good job, even if they're not be able to help us with what they think they will want help with. But so they, the, I want, I would like all doctors and, and all healthcare professionals not to have to think that we expect them to know everything. Absolutely. And th th that's sort of we're here together, and we need to be working together. But that needs that needs to be changed to be able to do that. I'm going to suggest a very simple, practical thing, and I don't know whether it would work, and you probably all think it's been said before, I don't know. <coughs> if, you, if you go into hospital to have a baby, you have a birth plan. And so, uh, this would, probably wouldn't work with acute, but it would certainly work with my condition if I had a plan for how I wanted my care done, and that was the incentive by which the system was measured. Michael. I'll have to follow you. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> I'm going to start with Angela's point because for me as a patient ultimately my healthcare is about a relationship and every decision with every doctor that I go to or every surgery that I go to it's about building that relationship um, so for me I want to change the dynamic that goes from a sort of a, 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 a we're here to treat you and this is the way we do it to this is a conversation and we're going to do this together and within that conversation is let's agree our shared outcomes because your outcomes are probably going to be different to mine so let's have a common goal for shared outcomes and then my final point just goes to, to Ben's point about about the system I don't think patients are embedded within the system and by the system I call GP surgeries trusts let's put a patient chief patient officer on the trust board of every hospital Thank you very much. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I've no doubt it will bear fruit. Those listening to it, I'm sure, will respond and give us their views via rapid responses. Thank you very much to all of you for taking part in this BMJ roundtable on patient-centred care. <laughs>